I am not Nancy Kane, but uh, I'm the act before Nancy Kane. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening, and uh, welcome to the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, my name is Jim Eisner, and I'm the Director of Media Relations at Harvard Business School, where I've toiled in the fields for more than three decades, believe it or not. And I am proud to say that I am also um, a proprietor of the Boston Athenaeum. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce the speaker this evening, Harvard Business School professor and historian extraordinaire Nancy Kane. But before we begin, please take a moment to silence your cell phones. It's always a dramatic pause there. And now I'm in an airline. And note the locations of the emergency exits at the front and rear of this room. Both Nancy and I are delighted to be here tonight. I first started uh, coming to the Athenaeum when I was in the seventh or eighth grade at uh, Boston Latin School, uh, thanks to a cousin of mine who was a lawyer in an office uh, just across the street, uh, who was also a proprietor, a designation I was fortunate enough to inherit uh, when he passed away a number of years ago. I remember uh, that one of the first books I took out of this library was Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy, which had just been published. It focused on eight U.S. senators who stood by their principles and consciences in the years before the Civil War. There were lessons to be learned from those lives by generations of readers. Well, in the year 2018, we are certainly in need of more men and women who are willing to stand by their principles and consciences, people who are authentic leaders, from politicians in Washington, D.C., to business people on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley, to presidents and coaches in universities. My friend and colleague Nancy Kane, the James E. Robeson Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, has recently written a superb best-selling book, Forged in Crisis, which drills deep into the lives of five remarkable and memorable individuals whose words and deeds, logoi kai ega, as the great Greek historian Thucydides put it, individuals whose words and deeds exemplify, personify, quote, the power of courageous leadership in turbulent times, as Nancy has put it. All the individu individuals she profiles met an extraordinary challenge head on and made themselves, as she writes, into effective agents of worthy change. They were not, as it were, to the leadership manner or mantle born. So with Nancy's book, we now have a Profiles in Courage for Our Times again with important lessons to be learned by new generations of readers. So I'm now happy to let her fill in the details for you all.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's well. First of all, let me just say that I have never had the honor of speaking in such a beautiful setting. Uh, really, quite quite awe-inspiring. So it's an honor to be here on many levels to speak with you, to be in this setting, to be in a place as I was. We were talking about with Elizabeth beforehand, where, especially at our moment right now, where the exchange and availability of information and the translation of that information into knowledge and then into understanding and then into wisdom. The translation from information into wisdom has never been more urgent or more needed than it is right here, right now. So on many levels, and the last of which I'll mention is my dear friend Jim Eisner in that very gracious and eloquent introduction. Please God, let Thucydides precede me wherever I go. I will say again, it's a pleasure to be here. What I thought I would do is talk just a little bit about the stories in this book. Because Jim's been very gracious about what I did, but really what I did was what historians do, which is inductively to piece together a really, a truth, the truth of an amazing story. Right? The truth is much, what did Henry, Henry Kissinger once say? Has the added advantage of being true. And each of these stories is to the best of my now, you know, very experienced sensibility and judgment, the truth. But the real credit goes not to myself, nor to the timing of this book, which was unplanned. Um, we didn't know you would need, we would need these stories so much as we do now. But to the lives, the five lives of individuals that were so bravely led. So I'm a vehicle, I'm a channel, and I'm going to offer you a little bit of each of these stories. But they're amazing. They're quite astounding. And they are the stories of individuals who are not legendary and not heroic. They are ultimately messy complicated, at moments doubting and fearful individuals who, by hook or crook, and in some cases by a hair's breadth, kept on keeping on and moved the boulder of goodness forward in all their messy humanity in enormously important, and as Jim said, really strikingly relevant ways for today. Because the book, last thing to say by way of introduction, so what I would propose to do is tell you a little bit about each of these stories, offer you a few of the lessons that it seems to me people as diverse as Ernest Shackleton or Abraham Lincoln or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Rachel Carson, the only woman in the book and the, 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 the bearer of the most poignant story, a few of the lessons they have to offer us. I'm going to do that and then we'll take some questions and I'll say a few things in summary if you like. Um, but that's what I propose to do. One last thing to say about the genesis of this unusual book, which is a group biography with some insights sprinkled in. No bullet points, no seven habits of highly organized people. It's a history book, right? Um, it was born at the Harvard Business School. I'm a historian. Right? I'm a very unusual duck there. I've gotten comfortable in my advancing middle age at being so unusual. But the wonderful thing about being a historian there is, is that I can live Mark Twain's adage about history, which is history doesn't repeat itself precisely, but sometimes it does rhyme. So this is not about the preciousness of the past. Not at all. That's not what I do. I teach the history of leadership at Harvard Business School, which incidentally means that at the end of the, until the very end of the semester, we have no guests because they're all dead. Um, 
But, but what it means is we, I, I'm offering this to students and executives, the history, as a way for them to make sense of the rhymes of the past with their own journey today and with our larger moment today. So it was born in this very interesting institution that's all about practice and, and decision and, and decision making for judgment. So let me say that by way of introduction and show you a couple of, again, I've got, I only have pictures. I love getting tenure, man. I had no more PowerPoints. I had no more need to know about sports st statistics at, with the Celtics and the Patriots because I had tenure and the Silverbacks. I no longer needed to impress with my sports knowledge. And uh, it also meant I could just use lots and lots of photographs. So this is Ernest Shackleton. He's the first story in the book. Many of you know the overview or the outlines of the story that he was uh, an Irish-born explorer who had been to the Antarctic several times when, and trying to discover the South Pole, he was beaten to the punch by an astounding Norwegian explorer named Roald Amundsen in 1911. And then in 1914, he decides to go back to walk across the, the continent and to be the first set of men to do that. And therefore, right, I, he starts off on this quest for really for fame and God and king and glory in the British Empire before the First World War. And he sails for Antarctica literally as World War I is breaking out. He gets in January of 1915 just a, 80 miles off the coast of Antarctica. This is the South American side of the continent, which, as you remember, has a big archipelago of islands and a U um, with kind of South America up there. And in, in, in late 1915, late January 1915, icebergs lock the ship, the Endurance, in a vice. And this is what you see here. We have lots and lots of photographs in my book and certainly available online because they're controlled by the Royal Geographic Society. They're astounding photographs. So this is the, this is this 27 men and the captain drifting this is in this ship along the coast of what's called the Weedle Sea. Um, no ways, no text messages, no Facebook posts, no nothing to connect them to the outside world. His radio was broken and didn't work. And so the story of the chapter is the story of how Shackleton manages himself and his 27 men as the slow motion disaster gets worse and worse and worse. Because what happens is that the shift drifts for a while, and then in the, our summer of 1915, the ice starts to crush the ship. And by September, the ship will be, the mass will be gone, the ship will have water pouring in, and the men will peel off with three 20-foot rowboats and a bunch of canned goods and nothing else. And Shackleton will face this brand new mission is, which is how in the hell do I get them home alive? And so the story is the story of Shackleton's interior, that his own awareness, his own kind of stealing or grabbing on to strengthening his muscles of moral courage and grit as he tries to keep the men cohesive and believe, and, and, and cohesive, co cohering as a group and believing Right? He doesn't want any Lord of the Flies moment setting in, believing that he can get them home, that they have the will to get home alive. And that, and that is really the gist of the story. And let me say two other quick things before we move on to the best known of the five, Abraham Lincoln. Two other things that are really important, because I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens because I want you to buy it. But mostly I want you to read it. You know, whether you check it out of the library or not, I want you to read it and discover this extraordinary story, which again gets worse 
And it's like a David Lynch movie, only much, much darker. But the interest, seriously, you can't believe what it takes to eventually, well, once the ship goes down through the ice, the ship goes down through the ice in November of 1915 in eight hours, slips through the ice, the ice quickly closes over, and there is no line on the horizon. They're drifting on an iceberg. They can't see land. They can see nothing. Right? They, have, they have tents, and they have lifeboats. And Shackleton can't sleep. He's so nervous about what in the hell am I going to do. The sailors are beside themselves with anxiety. They've never been offish. This is not what they signed up for. And that night, Shackleton paces the ice. We have all these amazing diaries to reconstruct his emotional experience. He paces the ice, and he says to himself, he writes in his diary the next day, a man must shape himself to a new mark the moment the old one goes aground. So i got to figure out who I need to be in this new situation as a leader. And so the next morning, he doesn't sleep, the next morning, he and his first mate wake all the men up at the flap of their, open up the flap of their tents, greet them with hot tea and milk, say, lads, gather around. Stay with me. Lads, gather around. Ship and stores gone. We'll go home now. So just think about what he's doing as he tries to manage the energy of the men, right? And, and, and by the way, no sign. There is no, you know, tweet saying, have no idea what we're going to do, right? This really makes me upset. Post. Tweet. None of that, right? So a very couple of interesting aspects about this story are how does a leader show up in service to a mission? How do we show up, each of us, each day in service to the mission when so many eyes are on us? And secondly, how important is the energy of the group of the people that we lead, our family, our classroom, our teams, our community organization. How important is that in a very turbulent moment? Shack the Shackles in chapter has lots to say about that. And the astounding, again, resilience of this man. And the resilience he could motivate in sight among others. So Shackleton, chapter one, real page turner. And you'll be glad to know the chapters are very short. Because as my editor said, people's attention spans are shrinking, Nancy. Make them short. Let them check them off quickly. Brilliant, brilliant suggestion. Um, so Lincoln is chapter two. We've all read a lot about Lincoln. The world, Lord, Lord knows, did not need another book about Lincoln, which is what I started out to do, was write a book about Lincoln. And then a flash of welcome humility realized the world did not need another book. But I, the Lincoln chapter is the longest because I know so much about Mr. Lincoln. I've lived for, with him for 10 years. Um, this, by the way, is my favorite portrait of him. You rarely see it. It's from 1854. It's called the Danville Portrait. And I like it because you can, first of all, he looks almost handsome, something he would have been very, very, very surprised to hear anyone say. He always thought he was so homely. Secondly, you get a sense of the, the, the thoughtfulness, the, the often detached or distracted or dreamy glaze because he could live so well in another world and detach himself from the moment he was in so easily. Um, and secondly, just the, again, the extraordinary intelligence. Um, so what, what this chapter is, is, is at its fundamental heart, it's about what did it feel like to be in Lincoln's shoes during the perfect storm of the Civil War. So it's about Lincoln's emotional experience as president. I don't have a modern hat to hang him on, to put on him. This is not about Lincoln's purported homosexuality. He was not a homosexual. It's not about Lincoln's depression, although Lincoln suffered from depression. 
It's not about Lincoln as commander-in-chief. It's not about Lincoln as the great emancipator. It's not about Lincoln as the writer of the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural. What new, possibly, can you have to say, Nancy, about Mr. Lincoln? Well, I have several new things to say about Mr. Lincoln. The first is that any leader of any size organization, more than one person, leading in a, in a moment of great turbulence, can't just be an effective decision maker, or a great executor, or a brilliant strategist, or a wonderful communicator. Lincoln got mixed mixed marks on lots of those axes, ultimately. A great leader at a turbulent moment, think about our own moment at the national level, has to be able to frame the stakes of the moment. What's going on? Where to, where, where to are we headed? Right? For what end? And what are the trade-offs involved in leading our country, or our organization, or our team, or our business, or our startup? our library, what are the trade-offs in heading for that North Star, and why are those trade-offs worth making? The more volatile the stakes, the more critical it is that leaders frame them for the people that are looking to them. We are so thirsty for this right now as a people. We are parched for this as a country, as a national power, as a set of, you know, animating principles, we are so thirsty for this. And Lincoln understood this from early on, that his role was not just to be a commander-in-chief or some kind of broker ultimately on the great question of slavery, a position, by the way, he raced away from for the first 18 months of his presidency, wanted nothing to do with a definitive line, drawing a line on slavery. But he, was a, he understood that a huge amount of what he had to do was to frame and communicate the stakes of the moment and what the Civil War ultimately meant. So that's one new thing that no one's ever written about, about Lincoln. Secondly, a second thing that no one has written about at Lincoln is how his own set of failures along the way, this is a man who lost far more elections than he ever won. He felt he was a failure in so many aspects of his professional life all the way to the White House. Um, how he used his if you will, experience a failure, and to a certain extent, his, his great experience with, with what today we would call chronic depression. He, call it, he called it, by the way, the hypo, or melancholy, when it visited upon him. And he had many, many, right, a lot of mileage with it. How he used that mileage of failure and melancholy to grow stronger and ultimately braver, bit by bit, sometimes two steps forward, three back, to grow braver and stronger and more committed over the course of the presidency. The man who took office in March of 1861, who said, like, we are loath to close, we are enemy, we must not be enemies, we are friends, right? And better angels of our nature, when again it is touched by the better, that was a very different person than in 1863 in January when he'd signed the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And he said, he had been at a reception right before he signed it, so his hand was shaking so badly from shaking about 2,000 hands that he was worried when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation that afternoon upstairs that his hand would wobble and he was worried that history would think he was uncertain about the act. He said he steadied it. William Seward tells us this, his Secretary of State was there. He steadied it. He said, I was never more certain of anything I ever did. And he signs it in a bold, clear hand. That man, there are two different people there. A man who, and then by the way, when we get to the pivotal moves, remember the scene in, Steven Spielberg's movie. I went to the movie. I was prepared to hate it. 
Oh, he'll get it all wrong. I'm going to spend a lot of time harumping. I'm going to enjoy feeling like a sanctimonious academic. I loved it. Tony Kushner got almost everything dead on right. And Daniel Day-Lewis and Sally Field, oh my goodness, right? I mean, I've seen it about 30 times. One tiny quibble, I'm, I'm getting off, so I'll rein myself back in, but one tiny quibble, he would never have said, I am cloaked in an immense power. Lincoln would never have said that. But the, mo the only real historical issue here that's out of whack is there's a scene in the middle of the movie when Lincoln is considering bringing the peace negotiators for the South up into Washington in January of 1865. And he's sitting in the telegraph office debating this. Send the telegraph to send the... And he decides not to. And it's, it's kind of set up as a grand denouement of the movie. That didn't happen. Link, the, there was a grand denouement when Lincoln considered caving and suing for a negotiated peace that would have left slavery legal and intact in the South. But it happened in August, right before Sherman took Atlanta. In early in late July, early August, 1864. And that man, who ultimately held the line with some help from Frederick Douglass, you can read about that in the second chapter of the book, was a different man, still a braver, more resilient man than the man who signed the, the Emancipation Pro Proclamation in 1863, or the man who would give every single political chip he had to pass the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and lay the groundwork for the 14th Amendment, making blacks citizens. And, make, uh, 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 and then the 15th Amendment, giving black men the right to vote. Forged in crisis. So the second new thing I have to say about Lincoln is that he was truly forged with a great, great gas tank of emotional awareness. And but by a hair's breadth did he almost give up the game on a number of occasions. So this one of the wonderful things about these stories is how each of these individuals get so close to the cliff of giving up, so close. Carson with breast cancer in Silent Spring. Shackleton, right, when he really is not sure he can do another day of trying to make these men believe he can get them home. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he wants to give up his resistance work against Hitler. And yet they get so, so close to the doubt, to the canyon of doubt, and doing a big kind of diver over into it, and they don't. And so part of this story is just the thin line that separates a huge positive impact from happening and a leader giving up and the whole thing being lost. It's really, it's really quite compelling and quite, again, quite relatable. So a couple more pictures here. from There's many in the book, and there's obviously many more. These are pictures all from Gettysburg. This is Devil's Den, where a terrible battle took place the second day. I want to say one more thing about Gettysburg toward the end that's really important. Um, about Lincoln as a leader and what, what's exemplified in that. So this is just, just so you want to see the, the, the shock and awe of the arithmetic of the American Civil War. In the far right corner is the number of people that died or were wounded. These were, not, these were people killed or wounded in battle. So this is not deaths by disease. So that's 1.1 million people on both sides. Of a population of about 33 million, make it 33%. Make that about 9 million people today if we did the proportional math. It's astounding carnage um, that Lincoln was exceptionally guilt-wracked about and, and determined to prosecute the war to what he thought as a just conclusion, which was the end of slavery and the restoration of America back to its original promise, equality for all. Uh, this is Lincoln right before he was assassinated, about a month before he was assassinated, after the second inaugural. 
in March of 1865. I, I put this slide up because, to contrast with the slide just a few slides ago, so just to give you a sense of the kind of physical and emotional burdens of the war on the leader. There's a whole, there's an ongoing thread in the book about the physical burdens of leading in turbulent times and how the leader needs to feed and water himself or herself as well as their troops. The third story is one of the two that are the least well known in the book, at least by white Americans. It's the story of Frederick Douglass, and this is an amazing story. Many of you have read his first autobiography, The Narrative of a Slave, by Frederick Douglass, published in 1845. It's a story of a young man who escaped from slavery, was born to slavery in Maryland, um, uh, and escapes from slavery when, he, when he's 20, and comes to the North um, and becomes involved, not by design, but by solicitation on the part of Wendell Phillips and ultimately William Lloyd Garrison in the New England, part of the abolition movement in many ways nationally, in the 1840s, and becomes a spokesperson for abolition as a slave who can tell this astounding story. And what you may not know, I'll just give you this little bit, two, two again, two interesting, I think relatively novel bits about his life, important and illustrative, is, is that after he begins speaking on the circuit in New England and New York, the sort of northeast corridor, if you will, he's so well-spoken, he's so articulate, he taught himself to read, because it was illegal to teach slaves to read, by bribing white boys on the streets of Baltimore with bread to teach him the alphabet, and then bribing them similarly to teach him how to put string sentences together. So it's an amazing story of, again, the making right, of someone, of kind of this rising person from within. Um, but in 1845, he, there's, he's so articulate that, that uh, people begin to call him an imposter, a little bit like fake news. He doesn't, he's not a real slave. He's an imposter. He's fake. We don't have to believe him. And so he writes the autobiography to dispel the doubts about his background and how he became who he was. And then, of course, because he's escaped, there are threats on his life now and threats, threats of his recapture by his owner in Maryland. So his friends speared him off to the U.K., a little bit like the Godfather sending, you know, um, Michael Corleone off to Sicily right after he is, he's killed some of his father's uh, shooters or and, and to tell things cool off. So Douglas goes to the United Kingdom, where he's feted. There's a big established abolition movement. He meets a number of dignitaries, including the Prime Minister. He's a real celebrity, and and he considers very seriously after two years there settling in the United Kingdom. And then decides in 1847 that he has to come back. The chapter opens with him in a personal crisis about what to do. Should he bring his wife and kids to England where they'll have a wonderful life materially, intellectually, politically? And he decides, no, I have to go back to the heart of the struggle. So one of the interesting threads that runs throughout this book is how each of these individual people, once they discover their purpose, their mission, how they hew to it, under all kinds of great challenge and uncertainty, and how the very mission itself ends slavery, in the case of Douglas, forever, becomes Lincoln, transform America, Carson, create a, 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 a sense of environmental stewardship among the American people and among the American government, how the mission itself, we're hungry for this today too, becomes a gas tank for them. And it actually kind of fuels them in moments of doubt. It certainly fuels other people. Many years ago, 
David Foster Wallace, whom a number of you will know well by, by read, as readers, wrote what gave, offered the world what I consider the best definition of courageous, real leadership I've ever encountered. Let me give it to you. It's from an essay he wrote for Rolling Stone many years ago about the first John McCain presidential campaign. And he's riffing on leadership. And he says, real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. Real leaders are individuals who help us overcome these limitations, laziness, weaknesses, selfishness, fears, and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. And I say to you now a third time, we are hungry for leaders just like that right now. Right? Teachers, principals, activists, pastors, rap, we're looking for that right now. And people are looking for many of you, to many of you in the room for that right now. Douglas understood this very well. So he says, I'm coming back to my brethren at the heart of the struggle. And the rest of the story of the chapter, which is half the chapter, is the story of what he's doing through the late 1740s, when things did not look good for ending slavery in this country, for those of you that remember some of your high school history or college history. And then, and then what he does through the 1850s when the, when the, the simmering cauldron, let's call it that, when the cauldron of slavery starts to simmer and then starts to boil and then the boil starts to roll. And then we get to the runway to the Civil War by really about 1854 and the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And so it's a story of extraordinary organization, agitation, not just at a grassroots level, but among white elites, politicians, journalists, all kinds of folks, ministers. And then, last, second and important new thing to say about Douglas, is by the time Lincoln is ready in September of 1862 with some doubts, but ultimately with great conviction, to issue publicly the Emancipation Proclamation, he drafted it in July, Frederick Douglass and a number of other abolitionists, particularly women, subject not really well written about, women are the, really the core, core of the abolition movement in America for 15 years, it, the, really the, the important core. The work that Douglass has done gives Lincoln the political capital in the North to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So I suggest that there is no Emancipation Proclamation without all the hard, unsexy, very important work that Douglas and a lot of other abolitionists, but most importantly, Douglas had done all those years. So their bookends, Douglas and Lincoln, of the transformation of America in the wake of, in the midst and then in the wake of the Civil War. Okay. He's a fascinating person. The, last, the third, fourth story is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to say very little here because I'm sure I'm running, no, I'm not quite out of time, but we're going to have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is well known in certain parts of the world, but not in the United States. Not in the Christian community, because he was a theologian. Not in the community of leadership, because no one's ever talked about him as a leader. And not even for what his, for the work for which he was, if you will, for which he was willing to dare at all, which was his work as a resist, a member of the resistance against Hitler. He was born to storied, intellectually well-connected, socially well-connected parents in 1906 in Germany. He lived all of his life in Berlin. He was ordained the same year that the Nazis came to power in 1933 as a Lutheran pastor. He was a kind of intellectual wunderkind, had written two dissertations and another thesis by the time he was 24. Um, and it's a little bit like that line from Tom Leo, the folk singer. 
many, many years ago. It's a sobering thought to think, well, Mozart was my age. He had been dead four years. But it's like that, that's, that's, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer in terms of his intellectual achievements. And almost as soon as Hitler comes to power, he recognizes something very, very interesting in our moment. And that is, he recognizes, first of all, he knows from his father and their political connections. He knows a lot about Hitler's political past, including, obviously, Mein Kampf. And so he recognizes right away that what, what a threat the Nazi regime will pose to Jews and others, immediately recognized as enemies of the German state. And in, within a month of Hitler taking power, he's writing an article for the Christian community, the Lutheran community, about what do Christian, the followers of Christ, owe to protect those that are designated enemies of the, of the Nazi government. And that becomes a very controversial position to take. And it's one he hews to for the next 15, or the next 12 years, very, very, very significantly. The problem ultimately for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which he recognizes right away, is what does it mean to be complicit in a government that you recognize is, is at odds with what he considered, right, the moral principles that he lived by, the teachings of Christ. So the question for Bonhoeffer, it's a question for our moment too, and for lots and lots of moments, what does it mean to be complicit in a set of arrangements that one deems morally unjust, un that are not about virtue, that are the opposite of virtue. The problem of complicity. Right? And this becomes the central highway that he will travel on. He spends all of the 1930s involved in an active, organized, theological resistance to Hitler in the, a church he founds called the Confessing Church. And, and, and I won't, again, you can read the book, it's an amazing story. But it gets really dramatic beginning in 38 because this is the only part of the book that's a spy story. Right, if any book, any part of this book is ever optioned as a movie, right? This will be the Steven Spielberg pick because the last, the last third of it is all about his decision. Just like Bonhoeffer, he gets spirited away out of Nazi Germany in '39 because his friends are worried that the Gestapo, he's had all kinds of restrictions placed on him, he's on every watch list, that they're going to they're going to imprison him or execute him. So they bring him to the United States, they plunk him down in the Union Theological Seminary for till things cool off. And Bonhoeffer decides after nine days in New York, he can't be outside the struggle. And he's on the last boat from New York to Berlin. And he decides in that moment, in those weeks in, of agony, this is where the chapter opens, he's in absolute agony about what to do, that he's going to join the resistance. Two of his family members are already involved and become a government agent within the office called the Abwehr of military intelligence, working to assassinate Hitler and overthrow the Third Reich. So the last third of the story is the story of someone trying to keep clear of the Gestapo, alert allied governments to what will happen when Hitler is murdered and a new government comes to, comes to power, to try and carry explosive at certain times. They're, trying to, they're always trying to explode Hitler. Uh, so it's a story of the assassination attempts. It's a story of his set, his, him, work, him and his family members working to avoid capture or discovery by the Gestapo and the SS. And ultimately, it's the story of the moral questioning and grappling he's doing about what does it mean to take the life of a person he considers a monstrous leader, Adolf Hitler. And he refuses to shy away from the moral right, difficulty of this, the moral question surrounding this. It's an astounding story. And he's an astounding person waiting to be discovered, particularly by young people in our moment. So I'm going to leave that, leave it there.
Oh, bear with me. I'm going to have a, I'm a historian, so we always have... Ah. So let me say just a few words about the person dearest to my heart, even though I don't know her quite as well as Lincoln, Rachel Carson. She's a person ready to be discovered. May she become a powerful figure of inspiration for girls all over the world. She deserves to be. Um, just, a, just a couple of, of, of sentences about her background. She was born to a poor farming family outside of Pittsburgh. Her parent, her father, and she was the third of three children. Her father and mother never could quite make means, put means, put make ends meet. And so she goes to school, valedictorian of her high school class outside of Pittsburgh. And she gets a scholarship to what today we know of as Chatham College, Pennsylvania College for Women. She's born in 1907, so she's going to college in, in, in 1925. And she decides in her junior year, she's a gifted writer. She publishes all kinds of stories in St. Nicholas, the children's magazine, before she gets to, before she's even ready to graduate from high school. And she gets to college and major, majoring in English and discovers biology. And she has this huge in, first inflection point, major in biology, major in English. And of course, women, first of all, women didn't go to college in 1925. Secondly, if they did, they didn't complete college. Third, if they did, they certainly didn't major in science. And fourth, if they did major in science, there were no jobs to be had for women. And she decides to major in biology and wins a scholarship to Johns Hopkins spends a summer at Woods Hole, and gets to Johns Hopkins um, when she's 22 in, let's see, 1929. And immediately her family runs into financial problems, as they keep doing. She brings the whole family, struggling sister, two daughters, husband has left the sister, brother, mother and father outside of Baltimore, and she becomes the primary breadwinner while she's trying to get a master's and then later a PhD at Johns Hopkins. So this story is a story not just of this hardworking, serious young woman trying to do something that women didn't do at that time, forge a path. It's also the story of a particular set of, of, of responsibilities that often women bear, not just making money to support your family, not just going off to the lab and then going to teach some students and then meeting with your dissertation advisor, coming home and putting dinner on the table for mother, father, helping mother, mother, father, sister, two nieces, and brother. And the, store, and the income responsibilities become so great that she has to drop out after she gets her master's of the PhD program. She ends up at the Fish and Wildlife Service eventually, working as what today we call the head of content, writing radio scripts and pamphlets and articles, because here's a woman with a gift for language, the grace of a poet in terms of her ability to move to, for sentences to flow, and a deeply committed set of scientific body of scientific knowledge. So she can do something most people can't do. She can translate the natural world in beautiful, accessible prose without dumbing down the scientific rigor. And she starts to do that at the Fish and Wildlife Service, which she learns a lot. She also wants to be a writer. And so she's, she goes home at night, helps mom feed the, the nieces, puts some wash in the ringer washer, and like lots of women I know, gets to work on her own stuff at about 10.30 at night. There's a lot of women that are nodding as I speak in this room. And that is the story of her 30s and into her 40s. She publishes a book right on the eve of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor, which goes nowhere, will later become a bestseller once she writes um, her second book. And then in 1951, she publishes uh, The Sea Around Us, which is an immediate bestseller. If you don't remember it, you haven't read it, it is timeless. And it's a majestic, accessible, extraordinary account of the ocean its ecosystem and its relationship to life on, 
on Earth, and it wins every award there is to win, and it spends 88 weeks on the bestseller, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And she's off now and, and looking for a next project. And she leaves her job at the Fish and Wildlife Service, and there's a series, she has a series of health scares. Her father drops dead. Her sister, her sister dies, and she has now grand, she has nieces who then have an illegitimate child, so she now has a grand nephew, and she's still holding it all together domestically. And she gets a couple of letters in 1957 from Boston residents concerned about a pesticide that's killing the birds, they're dropping out of the trees. Right? Dogs are dying, cows are, she gets, because of her diaspora of connections through fish and wildlife, she hears from agricultural economists, all kinds of folks in the field, DDT is the name of the pesticide. And her publisher and her agent say, stay away from that. It's way too dangerous. She tries to get William Shaw, an author of uh, Charlotte's Web, to write the book. And um, E.B. White, author of Charlotte's Web, to write the book. He's like, I'm staying away from that. Too hot to handle. And she finally decides in 1958 she's found a really burning issue she can't stay away from. And so the whole 60% of the chapter is about her, the writing of Silent Spring the extraordinary journey to discover the truth and put it together about the, this pesticide and others like it, which are called organic synthetic pesticides, Heptachlor, DDT. The extraordinary threat she starts to receive as soon as word gets out that this is what she's writing about, threats against her life, threats against her legal status, threats against her publisher, which is Paul Brooks, Houghton Mifflin. Um, and then in 1960, she discovers a lump in her left breast, and she is diagnosed with metastasizing breast cancer. It's before chemotherapy. The, at that time, an unmarried woman couldn't actually get a diagnosis directly from her doctor. Yeah, I know, exactly. Right? So, so she takes her, it's a roundabout kind of thing before she gets a second opinion in a guy named George Kreil, whom a few of the medical people in this, world, in this room will recognize, very famous oncologist from the Cleveland Clinic, tells it to her straight. You don't have much time left. Go. Not get your affairs in order, but you don't have much time left. Here's the radiation treatment you need. And so the story of writing Silent Spring in this increasingly, if you will, incendiary atmosphere that it is, that is the vested interest, the chemical companies, the USDA, a number of journalists that are against her publishing anything against these chemicals, is also written against the backdrop of her trying to outrun her, the clock and finish and the despair, and the loneliness. And what does it mean for those of you in this room? There are a number of them. I'm a two-time breast cancer patient, um, no risk factors. What does it mean to live with the specter of dying? It's a very isolating experience in many ways. And she's trying to write a book that she knows is the work of her life. So that's, and she's making herself two steps forward, one back, braver and stronger, and freer to uncover the truth with great care. This book is, it's like the, it's like the publication of The Post, right? Now, the movie, issuing this movie right now, the story is well known for those of us that have been teaching it for years, this Catherine Graham's decision to publish the Pentagon Papers, and, you know, with lots and lots of help and input from her colleagues at The Post. But these stories have never been more important than right now when the truth itself is being, the, the existence of the truth is being questioned. So. The book is published, and it's serialized beginning in June of 1962 by The New Yorker. It's William Shawn's decision. It sets the world on fire. Um, and then the book is published in September, immediately goes to the bestseller list. Kennedy, President Kennedy gets wind of it. Stuart Udall, his interior secretary, brings it to him. 
And immediately, Kennedy commits, after a press conference, when a couple of questions are asked, commits his government, his administration, to a whole bunch of investigative activity on the Hill and in the, in the, and in the executive branch. And within a year and a half, there'll be a spate of legislation that will lay the runway for not just the, what will ultimately be a ban on these kind of chemicals, but the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Endangered Species Act. So of all the people that made a huge difference in creating the modern environmental movement and in building some of the bulwarks that are in place now to try and protect the most precious resource we have right now, which is the fragile and, and right, very, very, very important set of interconnections that constitutes our, our global environment. It's a, it really belongs in Rachel Carson's core. This is hers. This is her achievement. This is her legacy. At the end of the, each of these chapters, I have a, a, an epilogue called The World After Rachel Carson, The World After Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I have Al Gore and E.O. Wilson saying, of all the people that have made a difference in my life, no one has come close to that made, that difference made by Rachel Carson. Last offering, and then I'm going to open it up, about Rachel Carson. This book is so tough. This Silent Spring, if you haven't read it or reread it, the time is now. It's incredibly well written, but it's so powerful. Here, just get, because it's not just about the dangers of pesticides, it's not just about putting together health effects, long term effects, the legacy for our kids if we don't do anything about our environment. It's about all that. But it's ultimately a call, a sweeping call to citizen awareness and action. Let me give you just one of the extraordinary pearls she lays before us. Page 12. Have we fallen into a mesmerized state that lets us accept what we know to be dangerous or detrimental to ourselves and our communities because we have somehow lost the will to demand what is good? Have we somehow, have we fallen into a mesmerized state that lets us accept what we know to be dangerous or detrimental because we have lost the will to demand? Or, la or one last one, in this wonderful, and if you're just, if I've just in any way whetted your appetite, Google CBS Reports, which was the predecessor to 60 Minutes. Eric Severide interviews her in April of 1960. She's got the wig on because she's hellish radiation. She's lost her hair. She doesn't want anyone, she never tells anyone she has cancer except her agent and her publisher because she doesn't want chemical companies and her critics to think she's on a journey of vengeance. She's on the vendetta trip. So she, she really bears this alone. Anyway, it's an interview, and, she, and they juxtapose Severide interviewing her and then interviewing all the, this chemical scientist, chemist, this scientist from Bell Sequoia, a chemical company. And she says, we think we are called to master nature. You could say this about technology, too. We are called today to master ourselves. Yowza, yowza, yowza. Let me stop there. Thank you.